Welcome to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. In this ever-changing world, it's essential to prioritize our children's emotional well-being. Lynn can show you how to learn and model healthy emotional habits for your loved ones and become a rock-solid support system for your family. Now, here's your host. Hello, everyone, and welcome again as we take the helm. Uh, If you missed last week's episode with Amber Raymond, we talked about how normalizing emotions in our home can, can be an amazing and healthy thing for ourselves and our family. I am so excited this week to introduce Dr. Sharon Spano as our guest. She's the author of Pursuit of Time and Money, Step into Radical Abundance and Discover the Secret to a Meaningful and Prosperous Life. And she's the host of the weekly podcast, The Other Side of Potential, which explores the many complexities of our world that often disrupt our ability for ourselves and our families to live a meaningful and prosperous life. She's a family business consultant. Different challenges are faced because of the emotional ties that bind the family system and businesses together. Dr. Spano's experience in human and organizational systems and her research-based methodologies are designed to help business leaders generate collaborative strategies for success and sustainability in our ever-changing landscape. Thank you for dedicating your time to us today, Dr. Spano. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, thrilled. Okay. Now, I have listened to several episodes of your podcast. I'll just throw a plug. I was also a guest. <laughs> I loved our yes, time together. Yes, you were, and a great guest at that. Oh, thank you. And each, each time I take away a question or two with connections to my own life, it's so, so, so powerful. What led you to where you are today with the podcast, your business, your personal life? You've, you've had so many experiences. Oh, wow. That's a very big question. Um, I would have to say, and I'll, I'll try to make this brief because it was a very long journey, but I was blessed to have a son with a very rare uh, metabolic disorder. And that led me down the path of um, really a self-discovery, but also into uh, systems change at that level, you know, legislatively for children and families who are involved in the disability arena. And then one thing, one door just opened towards another. And I wound up uh, being very active as a corporate consultant for about 25 years across North America. And then the later years, uh, as I got more interested in human development and family systems, you know, the work has now evolved into more complex conversations around what it means to be a business person in today's very complex world when our family systems are being really so taxed because of the pace that we're all keeping. So that's sort of the short version of the journey. Yes, a very, very short, short version. Well, I mean, I thank you very much for sharing. um, And and you and I did speak about your son. And ironically, or however we want to use it, maybe that's not the right word. um, His illness led you to drive system change. And anyone who's tried to change systems and how they operate so that they serve us as human beings and clients more appropriately knows how challenging that can be. Exactly. And you know, it was so funny because I remember in my doctorate work, um, the systems courses were the ones that terrified me the most. And I remember one of my professors pulling me aside and saying, Sharon, you are an expert in systems. You're just, you're overthinking this because not only was I managing my son's physical body, those systems, which were very complex, 
but then the multiple network of systems that surrounded him. And then as I got into advocacy and legislative reform, you know, very easily I could see the educational system issues as well as the political, economic, societal system issues. So I became very keen at looking at systems, which then, you know, as I said earlier, naturally transitioned into a very high level of awareness um, with respect to family systems and individual complexity within those systems. Okay. And I, you know, I have a connection here in terms of my role as a superintendent and, you know, the first year literally going, wow, (laughs) trying to figure out that whole political arena, right. Where, Mm -hmm. where I'm from trustees are the governing body. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and many, anything besides operational things goes through the trustees and to bring about a, a, a reading intervention program for kids with learning disabilities we created uh, a leading from the middle, it was called committee, mm-hmm. which with union leaders, with with influencers, with people from Learning Disabilities Association, with teachers, with principals, with superintendents. And it was leading from the middle that made mm-hmm. that change happen because people were part of the conversations from the beginning. They were mm-hmm. part of the problem solving. The, and, and so the solutions came forward. But that whole thing took three years. Oh, three sure. years and pilot projects. And just so like it just just kind of put that out there as an example. And yeah. we'll talk about maybe one that you would like to share, too, of how system change. It's step by step. It's slow pacing, but it's worth it in the end. It is. It is because that's how we change society. Yeah. You know, it is literally one individual convincing one individual at a time. Um, if you're dealing with the politicians, for instance, that that things do need to change on behalf of children and families. Yeah. And, and when you learn to think of things from a, well, <laughs> learn when yeah. you learn that, okay, uh, politicians make decisions because of different reasons than ours and try to figure out how that works and, and, to, and to make that work for you. It's a different mindset, but unfortunately we have to think that way. For sure. For sure. But to your point, once, once you get them on board and they really do understand like the complexity of the issue that you are advocating for, um, then, then it starts to, it's like a rippling effect. And that's what we found certainly in the state of Florida and even at a national level here in the United States. Uh, one, one of the examples that I can offer you is we were fighting for something called Public Law 99-457, which was all about training physicians and families on the care and the protocols needed to identify children in the zero to five population uh, who may have specific issues, whether it be hearing, vision, you know, whatnot. And back in the day, you know, they those things were not caught in children until they entered the school system, which of course we know from a developmental perspective is way too late. So we we got the legislation, then we began to train physicians and all the providers that surrounded those children to include their families. And um, it, it was, you know, I think one of the greatest moments of, of my career at that time as I was an advocate was walking into a hospital at one point where our bill of rights for children and families was actually on the wall. Because prior to that, you know, the, the providers to include physicians always thought, well, we know what's best for that child because we are, uh, you know, trained, we're, we're trained in all of these things. And the parents were not seen as having any level of expertise. So we were able to change that mindset 
uh, because I remember at one point sitting in a meeting with the head of our uh, agency for persons with disability as a further example, and I was asking for funding for a family network on disabilities. And his comment to me was, we cannot fund a direct line item that is not a direct service, meaning occupational therapy or physical therapy or speech therapy. And I remember saying to him, Kingsley, here's what you must know that if the family is not intact, there are no other services because there's no one to get that child, excuse me, or that baby to those services. The family is the most important service provider there is. And with that, we got the funding and we're able to continue to provide support and education for the parents so that they could be the center of the the plan on on the care for that that individual child or baby. And it was a it was a big that's many, many years ago. And I know there's still lots of changes that need to be made, but that was a major step, at, at least in my my young journey as a as a mother uh, of a young child. I I have goosebumps. Just I'm it's almost like I feel like I'm standing beside you looking at the Bill of Rights and what what that just must have felt like. What a celebration. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah it was. All right. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, You mentioned um, early, you know, early intervention, which is, you know, that this show is all about early intervention. And, you know, the mind, the body, the soul, the spirit is all connected. We all know that. Although we're focusing on emotional well-being here, it's we're one person, we're whole people. So those first five years, I want to talk about egocentrism in, in, in those early years, because I don't, if we're more aware of it, then we can we can change our approach to how we work with our children, whether whether or not we're parents, educators, anybody in the field. Yeah. So my work, as you well know now, since I got my doctorate years ago, is more focused on adult development. And so we look at the research. The research tells us that there are twelve stages of human development as we now know them. This is after many, many, many years of research and many thought leaders and theorists who have come to this conclusion. And so the 12 of them, we typically say one is not better than the other. It's not a hierarchy in the traditional sense. And it's not necessarily related to age, although age does play a part in the first uh, four uh, stages because it's birth you know, to adolescence. And those are the egocentric years. Um, and then we move into more ethnocentric perspectives and then later uh, stage development, which there's a very small percentage, particularly in the American population, we say 68% of the workforce is uh, at what we call the con- the conventional stage. Uh, but the early stages of, of egocentrism, um, that's where our children are, of course, but then we have many adults that get stuck in those, uh, you know, maybe the fourth stage or even the fifth stage because of trauma or uh, addiction, you know, whatever the the, the situation might be, uh, where they are essentially developmentally stuck, but the world doesn't know that. We the world just looks at them as usually problematic. I would say in the United States, our prisons are full of early stage adults, for instance, and there's a lot that can be said about that. But we're basically talking about worldview. Um, it's the, when we talk about development, there are many factors to it. Um, and but our prisons are full of, as I said, individuals who may have not had the opportunity due to environmental failure to advance their developmental perspectives. And so they're living from that first person or egocentric perspective, which is 
often about immediate gratification. They don't have the ability to think of time in, in terms of future consequences. And um, they often don't have a real sense of, of how to access money, which is why I wrote the book on the experience of time and money from a developmental perspective, because I think it's important that we understand where we are developmentally, because then we have the power uh, to choose to do something about it. That is fascinating to me. So, uh, and I, we had a similar conversation with Amber Raymond last week, um, our last week's guest. So basically what we're saying is we can be 30, 40, 50 years old, but still behaving as if we are <laughs> in those early developmental stages in life where it's all about me, 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 me. Yeah. Yeah. And it really simplify. It, I'm going to simplify there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That, and, and I mean, then there's, of course, narcissism, which is a whole other issue. But an example is I have a, a acquaintance in my life uh, up here where I live in the mountains who um, is problematic to most of the people up here. And I would say um, she's in her 70s and developmentally behaves as though she were 13 which is why people don't understand how to interact with her. And so it's tragic because if the person doesn't understand this about themselves, all they know is I don't fit in, I don't belong, and they try harder and harder or they totally shut down. And then if they're parents, you know, to the point of what you're all about, it adds another dimension to the complexity because they're not equipped to necessarily parent in a way that serves the development of the child because eventually you have a child rearing a child. Uh, and that as the child becomes more mature and becomes a parent, now they move into what we call parentification. Yes. And they now are parenting their own parent, which creates a disorder, tension, maybe even chaos in that family system. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing the rippling effect of this through the generations due to war trauma, collective trauma, generational trauma, drug addiction, whatever, where more and more of our youth are experiencing extreme levels of anxiety and depression because basically to, to simplify it, their childhood is they've been robbed of their childhood. And so the answer for if I'm someone who's listening right now and I, I know someone or I am now identifying myself as being someone who's still in that egocentric uh, stage. My first step is to seek help, I would think. I've got to identify why I'm stuck there, what's holding me back. Maybe I know in the back of my mind, maybe I know unconsciously, maybe I'm not really even aware. What would you recommend for someone who wants to say, I got to get out of this stage? <laughs> well, I think I think th there's two things. Is I think we've become, at least in the United States, overly focused on therapy. There's a time and a place for therapy, but I meet far too many people who are experts on what's wrong with them based on the labels of therapy. So depending on the complexity of the issue within the person, obviously you may need therapy if you have addiction issues or whatnot. But if someone is just feeling an emptiness or like their life isn't at the optimal level or they're not they're you know, I, I work with a lot of people who don't feel in their heart of hearts that they know what they're doing as parents. Then what I want to offer is there is hope because when you understand the developmental model and the progression and you work with an expert who understands all the complexities within that, because we're also looking at lines of development, we're looking at personality structures, 
you know, we're looking at, you know, capacity for leadership, we're looking at a lot of things, then that person, um, you know, that's what I do every day is I'm leading people through a process that helps them really step into what we call generational, or I'm, I'm sorry, um, um, developmental movement, so that you have the most robust experience of life. It, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to move uh lateral or, or vertically, I should say, to another stage of development, that's ideal. But if you don't do the work at the stage you're in, what you do, everything transcends and includes is what we say. You just bring all of those dark sides of yourself or the shadow side of yourself with you to the next stage. So if you think of a ladder, even though, again, I'm, it's not hierarchical in the typical sense or a mountaintop, but we have broader perspectives. I can see a, a, across to the state of Tennessee, because I'm at 4,600 feet here in the mountains, which is a very different perspective than if I'm on Main Street and all I can see is one block to my right or my left. So you're helping people move outside of egocentrism to, to broader perspectives. But most often we need someone to walk alongside of us to give us very specific practices uh, and witnessing opportunities such that we embody and embrace um, whatever whatever is next for us at that next stage or even, even a horizontal growth opportunity. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And I love the visual image that you just shared with us, you know, about thinking things about things in a different way. That That's very powerful because I'm a visual learner, <laughs> like many, many of us. I really appreciated that. Yeah. Well, one thing I would add to that is that Part of what we know from the research is that everything is socially constructed. You know, we are impacted by our culture and our family structure, or our family system. So that's our first experience of the world. And if you don't broaden that, which many of us don't, because we live where we live and maybe we travel a little bit, but what in, in the United States, I, I love to think of Americans love to travel with a bunch of Americans. You know, I was just in Hungary with people from 50 other countries. Mm -hmm. And I do that very intentionally because I want to learn other worldviews and other perspectives. And I want to know how other people are dealing with uh, the complexity of our world. But the average person doesn't have those opportunities. So then we parent the way our parents parented. And if our parents were abusive or our parents were not present, we tend to follow those patterns, even though we wish or thought that we would do it differently, but we rarely are equipped or trained on how to do it differently. So we just repeat, you know, the same cycles. And that's, that's I, again, why we're seeing the increase, I think, that we're seeing in society today in terms of, of violence and and you know the 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 breaking of of family systems because it's it is generational. Wow, that is an excellent segue to what we're going to talk about after the break with Dr. Sharon Spano. Generational models of parenting no longer effective in a lot of ways. Not saying they aren't somewhat effective, but we are proposing a shift towards that conscious family culture. We're going to talk about that after the break. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. <laughs> Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko. 
and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice of America Health and Wellness. Are you feeling confused by all the medical information out there? Listen to Healthy Wealthy You to learn strategies that will help you create a personal approach that finally works for you. It's you living your best life. Healthy Wealthy You with host Dr. Camille Vardy, Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Before the break with Dr. Sharon Spano, we're talking about the concept of egocentrism and how we as adults could still be operating in the egocentric stage and uh, how to be aware of that and what we might be able to do to move out of it. We're going to move now into those generational models of parenting, uh, no longer effective in this very complex world. And uh, Dr. Spano is proposing a shift towards a conscious family culture. What does that mean, Dr. Spano? Well, you know, again, the family systems have really, really changed. And we have the, I, I want to just say, when I talk about the system, the first system is one mom, one dad regardless of all the gender discussions that we're having today, which are relevant, you can only have so far, you know, until something else comes up, one mother and one father. That's just how how we're birthed. So we need to have an understanding as human beings where we belong in that first system. Or my contention is we don't know where we belong anywhere in the world. So, you know, who, who, who do I come from and what is my ancestry? But more importantly, who is that mom and who is that dad? 
Um, but then there's the family structure, and that can be very, very different. And we know today that has really changed because of blended families and, um, you know, all these different configurations that that children are now finding themselves in. And families look different, and, that, and that's great. Uh, but when we talk about can't conscious family structures, um, I think of, of just, again, the developmental shifts that can occur uh, within that family so that everyone is aware of how they're interacting with one another because the family structure influences so much of who we are in terms of our identity and our own self-agency. So there's very specific ways that we can think about that. Um, but I, I think it's it's also uh, understanding what the structure looks like and then where are the patterns in that structure that need to be addressed or supported. So when I think about conscious, the word conscious, I think, is the most powerful piece in this, as well as understanding structure, which you just stated. If if I'm making conscious decisions, then I'm thinking about things ahead of time. I understand about how my behaviors, my actions, my words impact the people around me, myself as well. When we're talking about conscious family, um, am I on the right track? Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think I think it's it's having awareness of and 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 here's the challenge today as you and I've talked about it Lynn and, and you're very well aware of this. My concern and the reason that I've shifted so much of my work to the relationship aspects of our world to include the family systems and family business is because the pace of business has picked up and with online platforms being what they are and more and more women and and men becoming leaders in these online platforms there's great concern because i'm seeing so many of them really again with anxiety depression working 24/7 all for the quest of freedom but feeling guilt and shame and like i'm not the spouse i thought i could be or i'm not the parent i i want to be because i'm exhausted all the time you know i'm i'm working late hours i'm doing launches you know, it's it's a never ending cycle of work, 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 work that is very different from, you know, years and years ago. Think back in the 50s where dad went off to work. I'm not suggesting we want to go back to those days, mm -hmm. but I'm saying that there is a new level of pressure and complexity on the family system structure today than there ever has been. And children are falling through the cracks of that, uh, the, these new structures. So if I'm the parent that you just described, <laughs> you know, you know, that's my life. I've got it. My mother used to say, steal from Peter to pay Paul. These are the things that I have to do to keep the house over my head, to keep my kids fed. How am I moving into being more consciously aware or more aware of how that's impacting my children? And what can I do about it when I'm already, um, you know, burning the candle at both ends? Well, I think, I, you know, children are so fascinating because, as you know, they don't need necessarily a lot of time, but they need quality time. They need to know that they're seen, they're heard, you know, they're valued. And, and to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to spend four hours a day, you know, sitting with them, you know, face to face. But, but there are opportunities for us. I, I, one of the things that pains me is, is being in a restaurant and seeing a parent, and it's usually a single parent, or appears to be a single parent with two children. And it's um, a situation where the, the kids are either just sitting there on their own uh, eating or they're on a device, but the parent is on their phone. Mm -hmm. We're all addicted to our phones, I'm, but, but I think there's an opportunity to be conscious of when I'm on my phone, when I'm not. 
And again, this, 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 this also means a raise in consciousness mm-hmm. um, that I'm witnessing and have, a, again, like we were talking from a developmental perspective, I can see the bigger picture and I can see long-term that, you know, if I'm not paying t- attention to my children when they're, you know, four five and six, there's very little chance they're going to pay attention to me when they're 15, 16, 17. So to me, number one is to be aware of, how my attention with them, my time with them, my quality with them is being used uh, versus the technology that we're all on. That's number one. Number can I two, just, can I jump in? Yes, I just want please. to jump in here with a little connection. I, I think the question I ask myself when I'm with people is if I've got my phone out, what message am I sending them? That they are not as important as this exactly. piece of information on my phone that I could read in two hours. It's not so... Yeah. So I think being conscious is is what message are we sending our kids when we are physically present with them and they still don't have our attention. I, I love that. Well, and you know, it's 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 I, just to give an example because even as adults, I was with a, a friend uh, the other night for dinner, and then he invited my husband and I back over to his place to have you know a glass of wine after dinner. And it was just fascinating to me. And I've seen this with him over and over and over again. We've even talked about it is when you're talking, he picks up his phone and he starts scrolling. When he's talking, he wants your attention. So the feeling that I got as we were sitting there supposedly having a conversation was every time he picked up his phone and started scrolling was I, I, I don't matter. Like, why, exactly. why did I come back here? Why am I even here? Because we're not having a conversation unless you're talking, which is not a conversation. That's a one-way communication. So the, the technology is something we all battle, even at the adult age. Um, the other, I would think, though, going back to what I said earlier about parentification, if I, as a parent, am struggling in whatever form that might take, There is a tendency, and we see this most often if there is a separation or divorce, for the parent to put a lot of unintended pressure on the child to kind of play, take on the role of the person that is now left, whether it's mother, father, partner, whatever. Um, And so the child then becomes the caretaker of the parent, you know, maybe mom cries a lot, or maybe mom's angry a lot or depressed a lot. And now that little boy or girl starts to feel like it's up to me uh, to make my mother or father feel better. And I mean, that is the birth of many comedians. You know, they'll say that I I learned to be a comedian because I was always trying to make my, my mother laugh because she was so sad after my father left or whatever the scenario might be. So I think parentification, being aware that I'm not putting my pain on my child, and that doesn't mean to sugarcoat everything to where they're not aware of the reality, but we have to remember to listen, listen really with great intention to what our children are saying, and also to speak to them at age-appropriate levels. So they don't need to know everything. Yeah, they may need to understand, you know, obviously if there's been a divorce or a separation, you know, and, and I think many parents are good or better uh, in these days to, to help the children understand that, you know, we love you, but we need to live in separate places or whatever the case may be. But I think to be conscious of age appropriate conversations. So to your to your point, Lynn. Yeah, I uh, two connections here. Uh, parentification. I love the way you explained it about, you know, assisting or becoming the parent. But there's also younger siblings. 
you know, in the picture. So you're not only there sometimes uh, um, assisting or becoming the step in parent you're, for your for your mother or your father or whoever. It's young, and sometimes it's not the oldest sibling who's stepping into that role either. So Most being often. aware, yeah, and what, but watching that happen also is another indication that something's got to change. That's one of the things that I have seen um, bring the most damage to an individual is when, um, and, and it's often baby boomers that I've experienced where maybe, you know, back in the day when women would have four or five children, and now the mother, for whatever reason, often just pure exhaustion or maybe even depression is kind of emotionally unavailable. And it's rarely the first child that steps in. You know, when we talk about family systems, there's an order to the system that must be honored, or again, chaos is is in in, in the midst. Uh, rarely the first child, because that first child is often the apple of the eye, and you know, they got a lot of attention and they don't want to take on that role. But then the second or third child then steps in and is the one taking care of the siblings and making sure mom's okay and you know, really becomes the parent. Even, even not in an incestuous way necessarily, but uh, in a relational systems way, even the, the, the surrogate wife for the father, where the father is coming to that child, um, you know, as kind of a, a, a peer, uh, a confidant, if you will. I've seen this many, many, many times. And what happens is that individual winds up um, feeling angry, disappointed, uh, you know, a whole lot of things. It's just too much pressure, depending on how early in their life all of that occurred. Uh, but that that's a, a perfect example of the whole family being out of order. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, it, and it and it's it's just a common thing. And, and it can happen very simply because, you know, mom or dad is just not available, even though they may be present and doing their very best. But for whatever reason, you know, they can't be present to the level that the, the ch children or the family need. Yeah. And your point to uh, divorce separation, uh, and I agree with you and the people in my life. And I, I, I remember when I was in elementary school and my parents were separating and divorce, and that was a long time ago. And that was yeah, not very common back then. Right. But right. talking to our kids specifically about what's going to happen in their lives, because their little minds are, where am I going to live? Where am I going to go? Do I have to change my school? Do, am I going to have to move? Right. So, you right. know, you said appropriate conversations, appropriate information, right. but they do need some information when they're going through some of those crises in their lives or because we as parents are going through them and they're coming along with us. And it's probably the most challenging right. time in their lives. And we have to be consciously aware of that. And they will respond as we respond. So I can give you two, I'll give you an example and then I can give you a concrete way um, because children are concrete. They only know what they see, smell, taste, hear. Mm -hmm. And so we sometimes think because they walk, talk, and move around that they're little adults. They're not little adults. Their minds are not, their brains are not fully developed yet. So one of the things I learned with my son going in and out of hospital environments and surgeries and all the things was he would respond to that challenge as I responded to it. So I was very careful not to show him my worry, all my emotions, whatever, but I would, you know, take him to the hospital, for instance, and show him this is where we're going to be. This is what we're going to do, you know, so he was prepared in a divorce situation, what we often recommend is that you draw pictures with the child or have them draw pictures so they can see this is mommy's house, this is daddy's house, and you're going to live in two houses now. 
And, you know, there's ways to really prepare them to understand the concrete uh, transition of what's happening here. And you're, you're going to be loved in each house, you know, that kind of a thing. Pictures and drawings and even, even play, uh, you know, mobile kind of little people uh, things can help them vi visually see uh, that transition rather than engage them in all of the emotions. So those are very concrete ways to help children, you know, make that make those transitions. That's an excellent piece of advice because, you know, when you think about where their brains are, as you, you just alluded to, visual pictures, imagery means so much more to them than uh, a list of five things. Oh, well, you're going to be doing this, 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 verbally, right? They're not taking it all in. They're stuck on the first thing. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to me? <laughs> Well, and the worst thing that you can do as a parent is disparage the other party, because mm -hmm. when you do that, and the, and kids will pick it up just with a glance, a look, a sigh, that then you're actually dividing the child. Their identity is cut in half because now they're torn between both parents. That's a very, very hard balance because there's emotions and a lot of negativity, obviously, when there's a divorce. You know, I was in Europe, as you know, and in Sweden, they're not getting married anymore. Mm -hmm. They just they just don't believe in marriage in many cases. So, you know, again, the family structure is really changing and and who knows what's going to what the future is going to look like. But we have to remember children are children and they think in concrete ways. So the more visual representation we can give them, the easier it will be for them to make transitions, no matter what the circumstance is. Yeah. And as as volatile or as angry as a breakup can be, um, you know, putting your position, your children in a position where they got to choose mom or dad over the other or hear things that are awful about one parent. That's not that's not in their best interest. Let's just say it that way. It's actually detrimental to them in many ways. So, all right. From with that perspective, well, we'll come back to that if we have time. I have another thought around that if you um, have a moment. Absolutely. We're going to head off to break. We're going to come back and finish uh, what we were just talking about, a divorce and the effects on children. And then let's talk about how we can foster healthy and emotional cognitive development in our own families, creating those environments that we need for ourselves and our children's future. We'll see you in a minute. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. <laughs> Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week 
Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you care about your health, your children's future, and the planet's prosperity, Healthy Planet, Healthy You offers nature-based solutions for our own survival as a species. Your hosts, Jimena and Lorenzo, will point you in the direction of making better everyday choices for your health, the planet, and future generations. On the edge of intellectual, poetic, and spiritual perspectives, Healthy Planet, Healthy You. Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. Have a question for Lynn or her guests? Join us on the show at 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Before the break with Dr. Sharon Spano, we're talking about the concept of egocentrisms the conscious family culture. And just before break, we were starting to discuss uh, divorce separation and how when we make disparaging comments um, against the person that we are leaving, uh, how that can be very detrimental to our kids. Dr. Spano, you had another thought you wanted to add. Yeah, I I think a big part of what I spend my time on with clients is helping them understand how the the human dynamics in family systems, because they're very different than they are in organizational systems. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to point out about systems um, is that the syst- everything that's in the system has an equal right to be there or wouldn't be there. So when something is pushed out of the system or excluded from the system, so let's say, for ex- example, you know, a common one that we all know is, you know, maybe an affair and one party leaves the system or chooses out or is pushed out or there's maybe alcoholism or whatever. What will happen for the child if the child is forced to choose between the two parties is the child most often will align with the one that is excluded and may tend to then adopt the behaviors of the excluded one. It's just the it's it's just human nature uh, to want to somehow bring back into the system whoever is excluded. And that includes even in past generations, we see this as weird as that sounds. So it's a very important aspect that we want to pay attention to in the context of of how we speak about the party who may have left. Because for instance, if if dad left, and and actually I'm living this in my own family right now, um, where my niece died of a drug overdose and her own daughter, not not that she's leaning towards drug addiction, but she's leaning into other things that could be self-sabotaging um, in honor of her mother. And without it's at, it's at a subconscious level where the child will follow the parent uh, in an effort to bring them back into the system. And that all sounds very esoteric. And it is because systems themselves operate at a quantum level. And it's all about energy and, and all of these other dynamics that we often don't have conscious awareness of. But I think that is one principle that everyone should understand that whenever anyone is excluded from the system, uh, there's a tendency for that child to follow. And it's also why marginalized voices 
are getting louder and louder, certainly in the United States, because these marginalized voices, I know you're experiencing that in Canada, have been quashed and pushed out of the system for so long that we're now at a point in our own human evolution where these voices are saying no more, we belong and you need to hear us. And that is just the nature of systems. It's not about me against you or us against them. You know, it's not at a personal level so much as it is a need, a cry for systemic change. I am just, I, I'm blown away right now thinking about what you just said about a child going to the side of the person who's been excluded. Lots to unpack there. And yes, in Canada, our, our Indigenous communities, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. horrific. I, we, I, I don't want to get into all of that, but um, the way we treated them, oh my goodness, in the last two years, it's really, yeah, the, the facts yeah. have come out and, uh, yeah, you know, oh my gosh. Okay, so we can talk about truth and rec- reconciliation at a different time. Yeah. Yeah. But sure, when you talk about the systems and the outcry that is long overdue, and we need to be listening and responding. All right. Sure. Okay, I want to move into, let's say, I, I'm here, I'm listening to the show, I'm listening to you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Spano, and I want to take, I want to do three things in the next week that I know, based on your knowledge and your expertise that you're sharing with us, are going to help me foster that healthy emotional and cognitive development in my family with my children. Where should I start? Yeah, well, yeah, you're talking, there's six lines actually that we would be thinking of, and I won't get into those now, but one is uh, we want to think about, to your point, emotional regulation. If I don't have the capacity to self-regulate myself, I need I need some support there on how to do that because there's probably a lot in my own history that needs to be healed and unpacked. So then it, I, I want to be very aware of how my ability to regulate or not is impacting my children. And, you know, if I'm getting angry often or, you know, whatever, um, then along. So I, and we model, to your point, you, you and I were talking about this on the break. We model that regulation for our children because they at these earlier stages of life, even into the adolescent years, they don't have the capacity to do that. Yes. Yet, unless they're seeing how it's done. Um, And unfortunately, there's too much around them and too much noise and too much violence around them. It's so easy for them to to learn the the wrong way uh, or or a way that won't serve them in society, uh, you know, in in terms of self-regulation. And then along with that, I think what's really important, I spend so much time, even at at high level CEO uh, uh, instances with high level CEOs, is the language that we use. So, you know, I think I think to your point, as, as we talked on the break, you know, anger is not something we want to repress. That is not healthy. But we can teach our children how to express their anger. And I can remember years ago with my son, him getting angry and, I, and saying to him, you know, you have a right to be angry and I respect that, but you don't have a right to be disrespectful to me in that process of expression. So language is very important because we often don't have awareness of the words that we choose and words can trigger a lot of things in other individuals and children will not forget. You know, if you say things to them like you're lazy or you're you're not trying hard enough or you're stupid or you're never going to amount to anything. These are things that I'm dealing with on a daily basis with 45-year-old men who've had fathers Uh, say these kinds of things to them, and they've never recovered from the the fact that their father 
who thought I would almost imagine that he was being a good disciplinarian mm. uh, was actually in many ways abusing the, the self-esteem and the agency of that child. So language is very, very important. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give you another example of my son and how smart kids are. I remember at a very early age, getting angry and apologizing. And then it happened some months later. And I remember saying again, I'm really sorry. Mommy was very tired. I shouldn't have said that. I want to apologize. And here's what he said to me. You know, mom, I don't know if this keeps happening, how many times I can forgive you. Oh, oh and I, wow. thought that, I mean, it really, it really hit me and it was only twice, but in his mind was like, you know, I mean, how many times is she going to do the same thing and then say she's sorry? Like I, I immediately realized I had lost some credibility there and I never, I, you know, whatever the, the, the behavior was, I never repeated it again. Um, because children again are so darn smart and they're going to respond to our actions far more than, you know, our repetitious, uh, you know, asking for forgiveness or things of that nature, which I know goes on in a lot of households. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very concrete example. Your family has endured so much. My gosh, Dr. Spano with, you know, your son, your son's illness, the passing of your son, and now your niece and the impact that that's having on your family. And, you know, for you to come and speak openly and honestly with us about that, I thank you very much. And, and my heart goes out to you. Well, I appreciate it, but it's part of the journey. And I think every family has their story, you know, certainly again, being in Hungary last week and hearing about the deaths in Turkey and Ukraine and Russia and, you know, people or families are suffering all across the globe. And so I think it, you know, it's, it's a worthy conversation. And I honor the work that you're doing because uh, we need, we need to, as a global society, if we're going to survive, we need to put more emphasis, I believe, on our children and the generations that are rising up because they are rising up in a very complex world, far more so than any of us knew. And, and it's not that the world, I think, has changed that much. We've always had wars. We've always had trauma. But it's that it's so available and they're hearing about it 24-7. That's one other thing I would say is we need to watch our discourse around our own political idea, ideas, ideologies, the division that we might express, the TV being on 24-7, um, you know, so many individuals, particularly baby boomers, I think, are just saturated and, and really overloading themselves on media. And then, and then our kids and grandkids are exposed to that. And it's not a very hopeful world for them if all they're hearing is the, the, the media, because the media is designed now to produce fear. Mm -hmm. And our children are growing up. And that's why I think we're seeing the increase of anxiety and depression is there's just no hope for them if they're listening only to the negative aspects of our world. And a, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old isn't going to be able to differentiate between, you know, you hear about uh, um, the war. Let's just talk about the war. Oh, my gosh. Did they realize it's on the other side of the world? What is the impact? The, the fear, right? The tornadoes, the hurricanes, the floods, the, the global warming. All of that is around them. And they're hearing about it 24-7. So, yes, I totally agree with you. And so the whole piece of what why we're doing this show is to help people try to think in a proactive way rather than saying, I see something's off or wow, I've really blown it as a parent. And I, you know, I talk all the time about self-compassion, mm -hmm. right? We are, we are also in the midst and I'm a baby boomer 
Uh, right. We're in the midst of all of this around us too, and trying to figure out how to manage it and what we let in and what we let out. But those conscious decisions have to be part of our lives. Now we have to be aware. We have to, we have to say, I'm not engaging in this conversation. Um, I'm having a, a conversation with someone that is based in anger. I'm taking that outside. I don't want my children to hear it. Or maybe I'm just going to end the conversation because it's not something I want to engage in now. Right. I mean, so, so if we can give our kids tools and strategies right from the time they're starting to grow up, then they have them at least to pull out of those drawers, to pull out of that filing cabinet when they need them, because they are going to be faced with these challenges in their lives. It's not, it's not an easy journey. No, it's not. And, and again, I think that's why your work is so important. And, and I'll, I'll just end with this is that I think one of the things I learned from my son, because he was critical for four years and he was really um, not himself. I mean, he was just kind of, it was like dementia. He didn't even know us. He didn't know where he was. He was so ill. But you know what I knew we did well, he he was in always a state of memories of the past, of things that he had experienced, travels and parties. And that that was our goal was to give him a lot of memories because we didn't know how long he was going to live because he, he was only supposed to live to two. He lived to 27. And I, my husband and I both say, thank God, um, we gave him all of those memories because at the end he wasn't hallucinating about his physical disabilities or the wheelchair. He was talking about all these places and experiences that he had had. And I think sometimes maybe that's part of our job as parents is to create healthy memories for our children the best of, to the best of our ability. And a healthy mem memory may be a walk. It may be a 15 minute walk where yeah. it's that one-to-one -one time that whatever that time is where you're just alone together and enjoying nature. Curling up with a book, which nobody seems to be doing anymore, but reading to your children, you know, they don't need a lot when they're younger, particularly, they just need to know uh, that you're available. Getting on the floor and playing with them. <laughs> and as teenagers, even when they hate you the most and they'd rather be with their friends, but you know, where can you find an opening to spend some time with them so they feel seen. Exactly. And I would like to believe, you know, my kids are in their 20s right now, and those are really challenging times for a lot of different ways. I would like to believe once your kids become, you know, comfortable that this is the way it's going to be, and mom, dad, whoever is always going to be there, then those difficult conversations are easier to have because that positive relationship is already there. And you, right. you're talking openly about your feelings and your fears and your worries. Right, right. To a yeah. degree, as you said, that is appropriate yeah. for the age. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they need to know that they can come to you with anything. And if you're not available to listen, then, you know, they're not going to come to you when they need you the most. They're going to go to a friend who probably is not going to be the best source of advice for them. Yeah, great, great closing comment. I, I thank you, Dr. Spano, for joining us and helping us uh, think about ways that we can create that harmonious family culture and support the well-being and flourishing of our children. Where can people you. find you? And, uh, and oh, you've got so much to offer. Well, I appreciate it. I do the constellation work on family systems, and you can always reach me at SharonSpano.com. I'm on all across social media. And um, also email me, Sharon at SharonSpano.com. But the easiest is to just go to the website and access me through there. And 
I'm on Voxer. I'm, I mean, I'm on everything. So yeah. <laughs> anyone interested in learning more about their own family dynamics or any relationship issues they might have, or interested in doing some constellation work that, that reveals a lot of what we've talked about, I'm available for that. Super. And if you go to the episode notes on Voice America Radio, you'll also see uh, Dr. Spano's contact information. Well, next week, uh, we're going to have Margaret Borsma. She's a social emotional literacy consultant and trainer. She's the owner of Creative Education in Action. And what she is doing with parents and educators is beyond belief. She'll be sharing games that teach children how about their emotions and the skills connected to them, how we can support our anxious kids, conflict resolution skills that work, and how do we give and receive compassion for ourselves and others and get unstuck. Let's check our compass and learn what we need to as we empower our children to face the ups and downs in life, which surely will come. Enjoy a week of health and joy, everyone. Thanks for tuning into today's episode of Taking the Helm. We hope that Lynn and her guests have provided valuable insights on how to create a safe emotional space for your children that empowers them to be their best selves. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.